Good evening. We're continuing the series. Today it's number 28. We're still in Masechet Yevamot. Uh, last week we finished with uh, three years starvation that were in the land in the time of King David. And he asked the people, the nation of Israel, is anybody here worshipping an idol? Uh, why? Because when we say Shema Israel, this is apart from the Torah, it says that when the Jews worshipping the foreign gods, different gods, it caused the rains in Israel to stop. And later, you know, there's nothing is growing, no grass, no leaves, nothing for the animals, nothing to eat, nothing to drink, no wheat, no bread, and then people starve to death, God forbid. They checked, they made a complete check, they did not find anyone. He said, maybe anybody here makes sins. There are sins, serious sins that you do that cause these uh, rains to stop. They checked, they didn't find. Remember, they couldn't find anyone who makes sins in the time of King David. How long ago was that? 3,000 years ago. Maybe it's better to keep the door open. Keep it open. 3,000 years ago, they searched in the entire land. They couldn't find anyone who makes sins. And then the third question he asked them, is anybody among you promising, committing to give tzedakah, and in the end they don't keep their promise, which means they make vows? It doesn't have to be an official vow that they use the word I, I, I promise or I swear or anything like that. It could be that a person, you know, like, like today, buy an aliyah in shul, and he's not paying for the aliyah, and it may take years. Sometimes people don't have the money, but the question we have to ask, why you buying when you know you don't have the money? Is that a clever thing to do? Because let me explain to you what the problem, it's a double problem. If a person comes to the synagogue and they sell the alios on Shabbat or Yom Kippur, whatever it is, and he say whatever he say, and then he doesn't pay, not only did the shoe lose what he was supposed to pay, that's preventing from somebody else to buy this aliyah and to pay. So without him doing it, the shul would make the, the extra thousand dollars. Because of him, he made the shul lose money. The house of God lost money because of him. Now you may come and say, well, you know, I was hoping I'm going to have money. You don't give tzedakah with money that you don't have. When the money comes to your hand, then you're allowed to promise a tzedakah. You don't have the money, who's to say that Hashem owe you to give you money. Who's to say that Hashem is planning to give you money? Maybe the next year you're not going to make any money. Maybe you'll be unemployed for a year. How do you count on having money and promising somebody else, especially for Hekdesh, for a holy, holy cause? And that's what it is. So that's where we ended up last week. Well, what if you have to be outdated? Maybe you want to do it because the other, the other person is higher. Oh, now, that's, now you're asking about being a tricky guy. Are you allowed to trick the audience and, uh, and basically when you bid on the tzedakah that people are buying, you know, aliyot, if somebody say 500 and you say 700, knowing he's going to go and do 800, so your intention is that the synagogue will make more money. But the Torah was very precise about not being a liar, not being a crook, even for good cause. The Torah does not promote Robin Hoods to steal from the rich and give to the poor, or to take from people and give to the synagogue. 
There's no permission to be a liar, to deceive people, even for good cause. There are exceptions to the rule, I'm not saying no. I say that sometimes you're allowed to lie if there's a husband and wife, they have a fight to make peace between them, Hashem allows to change, or to prevent an argument, to prevent a war, uh, to be able to do a mitzvah if your parents do, do, do not let you keep. In our generation, unfortunately, it's very common. Parents are arguing with their children that wants to be religious and the parents don't let them. And then I have, have almost every week I have questions like this. Am I allowed to lie to, lie to my parents? And they ask me where you go, so I say I'm sitting with my friends in the park while I'm coming to Torah lecture. Am I allowed? Because if my parents know I'm going to learn Torah, they get very angry at me and they lock me in a house. You understand what questions we have? Then they answer, of course. You're not doing anything wrong, you're doing a mitzvah. The fact that your parents are not so smart, you know, and they're going to ruin your life, there's no, you know, you, you're allowed to protect yourself. If the only way to do it is by telling them, I'm going to sit with my friends, but I always say, if you really check carefully, almost to all these situations that the Torah permitted to change your speaking, if you be very clever, you see that you can get out of it without lying. Without lying. Like for instance, you can tell them, I'm going to sit with my friends. Where? You don't have to say. Somewhere. I'm sitting with my friends. You sit with your friends in a lecture. You don't have to tell them all the details. The next thing you have to tell them the size of the windows here. Or who cares? I'm sitting with my friends. What are you doing? We're talking. We, you know, we're spending some time together. Let's wait out of here. You don't have to be clear. Well, somewhere. In Queens, in Brooklyn, in that street. In, you know, in, you have to understand. You've got to be clever how to do it without. If there's no choice, there's no choice. Okay, let's start. So, the Torah says like this. The Torah says, Tanua Banan. Now we're going to learn a few very interesting things here. The Torah says like this. The, uh, there used to be a person. His name was Nechunia Chofer Shichin. Nechunia, that's his name. What's, what was his job? His job was to dig holes in the ground. He's digging wells. Wells. How do they dig? They dig, they dig, and then water comes from the bottom, right? If you dig very deep, water begins to come. That was his job. They hire him, he comes, you dig a well somewhere in your backyard, and from there you get water. That was his job. One time they came to him and they said to him, your daughter fell into a well in a field somewhere. And, you know, obviously her life is in a risk. She fell very deep. They came quickly to ask Rabbi Hanina ben Dosa what to do. Remember Rabbi Hanina ben Dosa? A very poor Rav, very poor Rabbi. And Hashem announced in a court of heaven, the whole world is eating thanks to my son Hanina. And he eats carobs and drinks water from one Friday to one Friday. Which means he has nothing. So poor. Even food he doesn't have. And, but the whole world enjoy from the wealth that comes to the world thanks to his righteousness. That's the, the situation with him. So obviously he was a very holy man. So the, the, they come to ask him what to do. In the first hour, he told them, she's okay, don't worry. Because he has a vision, you see. Then they came an hour later. Rabbi, what now? She's still okay, don't worry. Then they came the third hour. They said, Rabbi, what now? 
He said, don't worry, she's already out of the hole, out of the pit. Then, when they went to check, they saw that the girl came up. They asked him, who got you out? She said, Mi Elach, who, who got you up? She said, you know, one sheep, a male, was passing by, and there was an old man taking him around, you know, maneuvering him, and he's the one who got me out. So she said, so they came to him and said, Rabbi, we didn't know you were a prophet. We knew you were a righteous man, you were a holy man, but we never knew you were really a prophet. Oh, you sit here and you know everything going out there. So he told them, not a prophet I am and not a son of a prophet. Not like today. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm a prophet. I didn't want to tell you. Yeah, yeah, here, here is the jar. Put some cash inside. Yeah, make an appointment next week. Bring your friends. <laughs> These people had a munai in Hashem. They're clean, clean people. And they say like this. It says, I'm not a prophet and not the son of a prophet. But I have a rule, and this is the rule of the Torah. The rule of the Torah is something that a person is doing a mitzvah for the public. Right? He's digging, he's working, he gets them water for all the people that they cannot do it on their own. He runs and do it for them. Something that this is your mitzvah, it cannot be with the things that you do so great, that will be your distraction. It cannot be. You understand? If your job is that you're running and curing people with a, from a certain sickness, it's very unlikely that your children will die from that sickness. Why? It will not be justice. It's needless to say that if you go and run for strangers and save their life and do things for them, then your children will have just as good protection like you do for the others, measure for measure. If, God forbid, you deserve to have, God forbid, a tragedy, Hashem has many, many different tragedies to send. He doesn't need to send the tragedy that this is the best thing you do in your life. Right? And so he says, if this is his job, he's digging holes, you expect his daughter to die in a hole? After all the, do, the good he did with holes? It cannot be. The Gemara says like this, Amar Rabbi Elazar, we're still in Maser, now, oh, now we're moving from Masechet Yevamot to Masechet Ketubot. What Ketubah? Ketubah means when a, when a, when a husband uh, gets married to a wife, right? When a man marries a woman, he gives her a Ketubah. It's very interesting because really in Hebrew it should have been Ketav. Ketav. Why Ketubah? Ketav. There's an extra Vav, an extra A, which is, doesn't really belong to the word. He gives her a ktab, that's what the Torah say, and that's it. Why? Because we have a very interesting say that the Torah said that when a man and a woman lives together, if they have God among them, there's always peace and happiness. If they don't have God in their house, which means they're not religious, they don't bring religion and words of Torah into the house, they don't follow the rules of God, there's just a matter of time until this marriage will go down the tomb. Why? There's no blessing of, this, of God inside the house. And marriage, it's a holy institution. Without the main supervisor that is doing things great, 
how can you succeed? So there is a hint inside the words of Ish and Isha. Ish, it's a man. It's Aleph, Yud, Shin. If you take the Yud of Ish, which is a part of the name of Hashem, you take the Yud, it becomes Esh, fire. Ish, it's man. Esh, it's fire. You took out the Yud. Isha, you write Aleph, Shin, Hey. You take the A out of the Isha, it becomes Esh. Fire and fire, all day, disrespect, arguments, cursing, violence, this, abuse. Now what do you have? You have the Yud and Hey. The Yud and Hey, it's half of the name of God. What's the name of God? Yud, Hey, Vav, and Hey. So now, Yud and Hey, it's only half a name, right? So the Chachamim say, if the name of Hashem is in, if the name of God is inside the house, they have peace. So they ask, where is the other half? Inside the word Ketubah. The Vav and the Hei that they added to the Ketubah made it Yud Hei, Vav and Hei. The name of Hashem. However, in the old days... I know some men would like to hear it. Don't be so happy because it's not applying to our time. In the old days, men used to have a second wife on the side. I'm not talking officially married. Yeah, people can marry more than one wife. I'm saying they used to get something that called pilegesh. Pilegesh. Pilegesh means an extra wife. She has rights, but she does not receive a ketubah. Which means when one day you separate from her, you don't have to pay her compensation. If you get divorced to your wife, whatever you wrote in the Ketubah, it's a legal document. She goes to the Beit Din, to the court, and I make you pay it. She has rights. And the Pilegesh, maybe she got gifts from you, but she doesn't really have any official rights in the time of separation. So Pilegesh doesn't get a Ketubah. The Torah says, and the kids of the Pilakshim, the, 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 some of the people that mentioned in the Torah, they have second wives, Pilakshim. How do you write Pilakshim? Pei, Lamed, Gimel, Shin, Mem. If you break it to two words, it's Plag, Shem. Plag means half. Shem means name. Half a name of God. That's Pilakshim. Pilakshim, it's Plag, half. Shem, name, half a name. Why? It's only the Yud and Hey when they live together in peace. But since she doesn't get Ketubah, she doesn't have the Vav and the Hey. So it's, that's why you call it Pilegesh, Plagshim. You got it? It's a, lot of, it's a lot of secrets in the words. Of course, we can talk about it forever. So this is Ketubot. Ketubot speaks about all the laws and all the scenario, scenarios when you marry a woman. How do you give her the Ketubah when the Ketubah is kosher? How you have to write the names correctly? You have to write the name of the, of the town, the name of the place. Sometimes this argument, how you spell it, and the date, and two witnesses has to sign, have to be Shomer Shabbos. All the laws that applies to official kosher marriage comes in this Masechet that called Ketubot. There's also another Masechet called Kiddushin, which also speaks about getting married, how a woman officially become your wife, by giving her the ketubah, by giving her a gift, some money, and by having intimate relationship with her, that's officially makes her your wife, that's not our subject tonight, let's see what this Gemara has to say. Amar Rabbi Elazar, Rabbi Elazar says, Mipnei ma'etzbeotav shel adam domot le'yetedot. Why? 
the fingers of the person looks like the sticks that you stick in the ground. When you make a tent, how do you call these sharp things that you stick in the ground? The poles, right? So you have ten fingers, which looks like ten poles. Like the poles that you stick in the ground when you make a tent, right? Why is it? The Gemara says, the answer is because if a person will hear something that it's not decent, such as curses, such as gossip, Lashon Hara, all kinds of bad things that you're not supposed to hear, you'll be able to stick your fingers right into your ear and block the ears completely. Why? There's no permission to hear gossip. And why Hashem made the ear over here very soft? One of the things that the scientists are very surprised is when a baby becomes a baby, the whole nine months until his body forms into a shape, right? It's very interesting because if you look at the material that creates the head, the nose and the ears are created exactly from the same material. In the last minute, something happened that over here by the, by the nose, it becomes a very hard bone, and by the ears, it becomes a very flexible bone, very soft. And the scientists have no explanation. What makes the process in the last step make it over here soft and over here very hard? Well, the answer is very simple. If the, nose, the ears would be hard like the nose, Nobody in the world will be able to sleep one night. It's like having a, <laughs> having a stone inside your ear. You want to, you know, you're not going to be able to, to sleep. You need it to be soft. Why? Because most people, they sleep on the side, right? Or they turn around, they put their head on a pillow. You cannot have anything. If you try to sleep with the headphones on, it's pinching your ears. Very difficult, right? So that's one reason. What happens if there wouldn't be a bone that protects the nose, right? Or the nose would be upside down. The rains will fall into the nostrils. Then a person would choke. One heavy rain, <coughs> a person is choking. Cannot move. Why? Because the nostrils are up. It has to be down. And the bone has to balance it and keep it straight. And uh, I know one person that uh, got a punch one time in his nose and they had to remove his entire bone from his nose. And this person can hardly breathe. Why? Because his nose is flexible. It keeps moving and choking him. Sometimes while he's sleeping, he's while he's talking, he's, ch he's choking. He has to go like this to his nose to be able to breathe at the same time he talks. Then the, the Gemara continues. The Gemara says a person should be very careful. This is to conclude this page from what hand entering his ears. And that's why the fingers are meant to cover completely the ears. And also that soft spot right here, when you press on it, it closes exactly the hole. It goes and blocks the holes like a door, with the lock. We know the story of Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva was 40 years old, a complete ignorant person, doesn't know any Torah, doesn't know to read, to write, nothing. He was taking care of the horses of a very rich man in Yerushalayim. His name was Kalba Savua. Why his name was Kalba Savua? Kalba means kelev, dog. Savua means savea, fool. Person is fool. When he eats, he becomes savea, fool. A fool dog. The dog is not hungry. Why do they call him such a name? 
Because every person who comes to him hungry like a dog lives completely full. That's why they made him a nickname. Kalba Savua takes the dogs and makes them full, which means people. People that are very, 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 very hungry. You know, it's remind me, there's one halakha, Purim is coming in two weeks. So there's one halakha, one law in Purim, that if Purim falls on Shabbat, on Saturday, you don't read the Megillah. Why? You postpone it, but you don't read the Megillah. Why? What's the problem? Read the Megillah. We read Chumash, we read in the Torah in Shul. What's the difference between Chumash and the Megillah? It's the same thing, it's everything the same. Why? One reason is because if a person will forget to bring it, the same thing like Shofar, he may run and panic and get it. Or if he's not ready, how to read the Megillah? Because it's not something that you read every, every week, you know, like the Torah, every week. Over the years, you know it by heart. This is one seer, it's harder. You have to practice a little more. If he will feel that he's not ready, he will run with the Megillah to somebody on Shabbat, hey, I'm not ready, teach me. So that's another reason. But the main reason is, believe it or not, the main reason, guess what? Because the poor people are waiting all year for that day. Because they know when they come to shul, for the reading of the Megillah, they get tons of gifts. They get a lot of gifts. And if you're going to do it on Shabbat, people will not be able to bring money and give them. They'll be very disappointed. So for being sensitive to the poor people, that they may be angry, and we're not going to do such an important thing on Shabbat, why? Because we're going to deprive them from their rights. This is a very interesting thing. Okay, so let's go back. So Kalba Savua was a well-known, wealthy person, very generous. In the time when the Romans made an ambush around Jerusalem for three years, him and two more people were feeding the entire people of Jerusalem for three years for free. They opened all their storages, all the wheat, the barley, the rice, everything that they had, they gave people. For three years, the Romans were waiting until the Jews would surrender, thanks to him and two more people. One time, his daughter Rachel comes and says to him that she likes the man who cleans the horses. Who is he? Rabbi Akiva. His father was a goy that converted. Think of the situation. Imagine today, you are the most important person in Israel. Not only you're wealthy, you're a big rabbi also. You know a lot of Torah, you know? And you have a beautiful daughter, very pretty, very righteous, very educated, very rich. Thousands of men will die to marry her. And then she comes to you and says, Dad, I'm in love with this guy that clean your horses. Who? Which guy? That guy, 40 years old, divorced with a kid. His father is a goy, so he's the son of a convert. He doesn't know alphabet. I want to marry him. Why? I like his personality. He has good traits. Imagine if a father gets such a horrible news. Most people would fall and die from heart attack. I raised you 20 years to come and tell me this. You want to marry a person who doesn't know how to open a book? He holds the book upside down. You ask him, tell me, where is Rashi? Where is Tosfot in Agmara? <laughs> that reminds me, I was in a, on Shabbat in Englewood. One guy says a story, a very, very interesting story. He said that one time when he got Tfilin Rabbeinu Tam, there, there are a second pair of Tfilin, 
that married people usually put it. You know, they switch from the Rashi to Rabbeinu Tam. Rabbeinu Tam was the grandson of Rashi. So one person put the tefillin of Rabbeinu Tam on the table. So one person came to him and say, he looked at the tefillin, he said, wow, beautiful tefillin. He says, uh, what happened? You took the tefillin already? You're not putting tefillin? He said, no, no, it's Rabbeinu Tam. So the person said, where is he? Where, where is he that he left the tefillin here on the table? <laughs> the person was such a fool, he didn't even know what Rashi, tefillin Rabbeinu Tam. As a religious person, many years religious, He's such an ignorant person, he didn't even heard one time in his life that there is another kind of tefillin. He didn't know. This is the kind of person she's going to marry. 40 years old, complete ignorant person, complete. So of course the father told her, as usual, we hear it all the time in this generation, you marry him, you are through with me. That's it. You're not... You're not going to receive a penny from me when I die. I'd cut you out of my will. I don't know if she has sisters, brother. I don't know what the case was. She's going to lose fortune. Her father is the richest man in the country. Okay, no, so. Why she wants to marry Rabbi Akiva? She saw he has good midot, but she made a deal with him. You want to marry me? Fine. In one condition. From the minute we get married, you go to yeshiva and you don't come out of there. So, he should have told her, so why are you marrying me? What do you need me for? <laughs> if I'm going away for, for, for 12 years, for 20 years, why do you need to marry me now? Oh, you want to be alone all your life? That's the difference between people 2,000 years ago that know that the visit to this world is only preparation for the eternal life, and people today that think they're going to live here forever, that's why they want to be with the husband all the time. Take me here, take me there, buy me this, give me attention, why you come so late? She told her husband, if I'll see you in a house, I want to get divorce. Why? Don't come home. Go, and it's not like today, you go learn all day Torah, you come 7, 8 in the evening, you come home. You sit two, three hours with your wife. Learning Torah in those days, 20 years you don't see him. Not like today, every hour, three times. What time you come home? The same time I come every night. <laughs> okay, I just wanted to ask you. Two minutes later, darling, you're still coming at 7.30, no? Make sure your friends don't call you to go anywhere. <laughs> so this is what's going on today. Today is a different generation. She sent him right away 12 years. Now remember, there's no transportation like today. You take a plane and you come for... This is far away. 12 years, she didn't see him. After 12 years, one day he shows up and he hears that the neighbor makes fun at her. What a foolish woman. <laughs> From the day you got married, your husband forgot about you a long time ago. 12 years? He did not come once to visit you? What kind of fool you are? You were the princess. You lost millions. You lost billions. Your father had a palace with servants. Every man in the land would die to marry you. Look what you gave up for this ignorant person that is done from the world. Where is he? Guess what she answered. She said, if I had a way to communicate with him, there was no telephones. Not like today. Hey, meet me in 12 years. <laughs> <laughs> if I had a way to find him, I would tell him to go for another 12 years. 
Now Rabbi Akiva was just about to walk in and he heard the conversation. What did he do? Turn around and went for another 12 years. And everybody asked the famous questions. What kind of man is this? He doesn't have a heart. You marry your wife. She's a young woman. You come after 12 years. She probably got a little bit older, no, after 12 years. You have an opportunity to spend a week with her and then go back to the yeshiva. Why didn't you even say hello? Why? The answer is very simple. If I walk in, the hello become a hug. And the hug become more. And then it's a week, and then it's a month, and then the Torah is gone. Come here, help me here, do this. Once you go, you're already in, that's it. Plus, 12 years, plus 12 more years, it's not equal 24 years straight. What is it like? Like putting hot water on a fire. You need 10 minutes to boil the water. If you put it five minutes, take it off for two minutes, and then put it again five minutes, it won't boil. You can do it forever. Five minutes on, take it off, five minutes off, five minutes on, five minutes off, five minutes on, forever it will never boil. You put it 10 minutes straight, it's boiled. That's it, no more germs. Now you can drink it, it's safe. No bacteria, no nothing. You pasteurize the water, finished. So the idea, first of all, she was very young. When he came back after 24 years, she was still in, uh, in shape, I guess. Or, or uh, to the best of my knowledge, I don't remember reading anywhere that Rabbi Akiva had any children from her. Well, it could be a problem. I'm just telling you a history, story, story. Now, before, I fi before you ask me a question, let me finish the story. So Rabbi Akiva knew if I'm going to stop for one night, I won't be able to go. Plus, 12 plus 12 is not the same. Now he went for 12 more years, and then he came back. When he came back, he had 24,000 students, which means all the important rabbis in the world were all his students. Imagine a rabbi walks, by now he's 64 years old, he comes, and 24,000 important rabbis, each one of them is better than all the rabbis in the world today combined, each one of them. Take all the rabbis in the world, combine their Torah, it will be equal maybe to one of his students. Multiply by 24,000, what level of Torah is following him? First thing, she runs, and they push her away. Hey, woman, what are you doing between all these men? It's not modest. A woman doesn't push herself in a mixture of men. You wait, you want to speak to your husband, you send somebody to, to call him. It's not modest. You walk into... Plus, when he saw it, he said to everyone, move, move aside, let her in. Move, move to the side. You have to move, not her. Everyone move. What? All the Torah that you own, that you gain, all belongs to her. Now imagine what a lucky woman. Yes, she gave 24 of her best years of her life. Life is blink of the eye anyway. So 24 years, it's a third of your life. A third of the life of an average person. Take a blink of the eye, divide it by three, take one part out. It's a blink of the eye, if you really think about it. What did she gain for this blink of the eye? Endless reward. There's no, no words to describe the Torah of 24,000 holy people like this. 
just Rabbi Akiva alone was the greatest Jew ever lived. The greatest. He became the greatest Jew. When Moshe Rabbeinu saw, when he received the Torah, before Moshe Rabbeinu died, Hashem showed him all the generations that are coming in the future. He saw Rabbi Akiva teaching Torah. He couldn't understand his level. He asked Hashem, you have such a Jew in the future in your world, and you gave the Torah by me? How, where is the justice here? He is the one who deserves to give the Torah. And Moshe was very surprised. By the end of his shiur, Rabbi Akiva said to his student, this is all what we received from Moshe Rabbeinu all the way from Mount Sinai until today, which was 1,300 years. Then Moshe relaxed. Oh, he gives me credit. <laughs> I don't even know what he said, but he gives me credit. Rabbi Akiva was able to take the crowns of the letter of the Torah and tell you all the secrets about them. Today, who even knows that there are secrets about them? <laughs> who knows? He can tell you by the crowns. You know, the crowns that you made in the Shatnes gets on the letters. How, what did they mean, each one? What's the secrets of it? An amazing, amazing scholar he was, Rabbi Akiva. How did he become what he became? When he was four years old, she wanted to send him to yeshiva. He didn't want he said, you're sending me a 40 years old man? You're sending me to a kindergarten? They're all five, they already read Hebrew. I don't even know how to read. What, I'm going to sit with all these kids? Everyone will laugh at me forever. So she told him, take the donkey with the plant. Every day go to the market. Let everybody see you walking with the donkey with the plant on the back of the donkey. He said, well, what's the point? He said, the point is that I want to teach you something. Just listen to me and do it. For the first day, everyone laughed at him. Oh, a crazy person came to town. Second day, 80% laugh. Third day, 50% laugh. By the end of the week, nobody laughed anymore. They got used to him. Every day he comes with a donkey, walks, and the donkey has flowers on his back. So people got used to him. Hi, how are you? What's your name? Akiva, come, have a cup of coffee. Let's talk. And that's how it was. So he, so he said to her, what are you trying to teach me by this? She said, you saw how quickly everybody got used to you? Same thing in kindergarten. First day, everyone would laugh. Second, third, after a week, you'll be friends with all the kids. That's it. That's, who cares what the people think? You want to know, right? You want to learn. That's the deal we made. The rest is history. It became a legend. Now... The question is like this. He comes, his father-in-law, Kalba Savua, didn't recognize him. Why? 24 years ago, he was, you know, a young guy, young guy. He wasn't dressed like a big chacham. Perhaps he didn't even have a beard. No, in those days, everyone had beard. So he had beard. But he probably became gray. So now 64 years old. He became all gray. His, his hat is probably different. He comes. He didn't recognize that this is... Because remember... From the minute he got married, 24 years, he didn't see him. So he comes, he comes to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, yes. I want you to dismiss one vow that I made 24 years ago. What? I'm an old person now. Who knows how long I'm going to live? I cut my daughter out of my will, and I regret it. So he said to him, why did you make this vow that you won't give a penny to your daughter? He said, because she went and married an ignorant person. Who wants such a curse in, in our life? All our life, I had a dream, thanks to, at least thanks to my money, I get her the best 
scholar from the best yeshiva. Now she went and married somebody that nobody wanted to marry even for free. Nobody. What's going on? What punishment did I get? What, what sin did I do that I got such punishment? So he asked him, tell me, if you knew at the time that she married that man, that this man is going to be the biggest rabbi or a big Talmud Chacham, would you still make that vow? He said, you kidding? If he knew a little bit Torah, just one lecture he can give, I would not already make this vow. He told him, you don't have to worry about your vow. I am your son-in-law. <laughs> what a happy end to the story. I am your son-in-law. Imagine this. It's hard to believe such a story, because, you know, what's the chance that something like this happened? And also, this story is against all the rules of halakha. It's If you really analyze this story carefully, the daughter had no permission to do what she did. It's no permission for a young girl, 18, 17, whatever she was, 20 even, marry a 40 years old man, divorce with a kid, doesn't know Aleph bed, doesn't know one word of Torah. When you come from such an important family, you embarrassed your parents. You, it's, not a, it's not the way of the Torah. Plus, it's not recommended to marry a husband that is more than 10 years older than you. Up to 10 years, you don't have to ask questions. You can do it. More than 10 years different, you have to, you have to go to Big Rav to get his blessing for it. He has to ask you questions. He has to see you mature, you're not mature. What's the story over here? You know, but not just like that. 19 years old, going to get married to a 50 years old guy. Why? Because he has a lot of money. He's going to buy her a nice car. So it's, it's very foolish. And most of these marriages do not succeed. No wonder there's so much cheating and, power and problems and all kinds of things when the man is 50 and his, and, his, and his wife could be his granddaughter. You understand? It doesn't make sense. Everything has to have common sense in it. This is the story that the Gemara brings about Rabbi Akiva in Masechet Ketubot. Right away, when he found out that he's his son-in-law, he gave him half of his wealth, which was, according to today's, hundreds of millions or tens of millions of dollars, if it would be today. Because he was, remember, the richest man in the land. Half of his wealth, right away, he gave him cash. Not when I die. And that's one of the first ways how Rabbi Akiva became rich. After all, he became a very wealthy man. He lived 120 years, 120 full years, and he got very wealthy from six different sources. Different sources that made him very rich. To, to say that the Gemara, the Gemara says that everyone who learns Torah when he's poor and is not giving up, is not, is not selling the Torah for money, for work, for status, for anything like that, if a person, if a person is learning Torah with difficulty, it's guaranteed that before he leaves this world, he will have wealth. Why? All the years you gave me, Hashem said, I will not make you lose one penny. Uh, Let's continue. It says like this. Maaseh Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakai. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakai was riding on a donkey. And he was coming out of Yerushalayim, out of Jerusalem, and his students were following him. He saw a young girl sitting on the floor, 
taking the bathroom of all the donkeys, it got dry, the horses, the, don the donkeys, they make on the floor. And she takes it and cleans it after it got dry. She cleans all the dry bathroom of the animals. And she takes out the wheat. The wheat out, the little pieces of wheat that was not digested. She takes it out, she washes it, and she eats it. Not to starve to death. That's, that, that's how poor she was, and that's how bad the world was. The starvation in the world was so bad that the poor people couldn't even get a piece, uh, something to put in their mouth, not to die. So he comes to her and she, and she saw him. She said, Rabbi, please give me tzedakah, give me food. She covered her face. Usually, Jews are not allowed to cover their face. You have to cover your head if you're married, but the face has to stay open. Pani means inside. It has to show the inside. But she covered because she was embarrassed that he would recognize her. So he asked her, who are you? I never saw you before. Sitting here on the floor, on the road, like a homeless. She told him, I'm the daughter of Nakdimon Ben-Gurion. Remember five minutes ago I told you there were three billionaires that supported the people of Israel, the people of Jerusalem for three years? Remember? Three years. One of them was Kalba Savua. One of them, Ish Tzitzit Akeset, and the third one was Nakdimon Ben-Gurion. Three billionaires. Her father was one of the three. And she's sitting on the floor, starving to death. He told her, what happened to all the wealth of your father? Where did it go? She told him, it's all gone. He said, what about all the kindness that he did for people? He said, everything went, everything went completely. She said, Rabbi, do you remember that you were a witness in my wedding and you signed on my ktuba? She told him, that was many years ago. You signed on the ktuba. He said, yes, he said to his student, I remember when I signed on the ktuba of this woman, I read the amount was thousands of thousands of gold coins, which means hundreds of thousands of millions according to today, if you really know what a coin of gold. That's besides the money of her father-in-law. Just from her own father was such wealth that besides even the money that she received from the other side, there was plenty, like millionaire. And he started to cry, Rabbi Yochanan. Why? Because the girl answered him, my father lost all his money because he did not give enough tzedakah. So his father, Rabbi Yochanan said, what do you mean he did not give enough tzedakah? He gave more than anybody else. He supported thousands of people for three years. Not one or two that is helping them, like today. You have one person that you help, you already think you're Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. Oh, I, have, I have my tzedakah already where I'm giving. He, he gives three years from thousands of people. Thousands of people. She said, my father did not give enough tzedakah. So he said, how can it be? All the kindness that he did for people, you're telling me he didn't give enough tzedakah? So she said to him, remember you signed on my ketubah? So then Rabbi Yochanan started to cry. He says, I, the nation of Israel, Ashrechem, when you do Hashem's wish, 
No nation can control you, no nation can arm you, nobody can touch you. And when you're not satisfied, Hashem wish, He puts you in the hand, in the hand of filthy nation to do whatever they want to you. And not only in the hand of a filthy nation, in the hand of their animals, which means she's eating the bathroom of the donkeys of the goyim who control us, who the Romans. What food she was eating? The Romans have horses, donkeys, that's the transportation, and they make their bathroom on the floor, and she's eating the dirt that comes out of the body of the, of the animals of the filthiest nation of these Romans. How down Hashem buried us. That's what he was trying to say. And he says like this, the Gemara asks, but how could she say such a thing about her father? Everybody knows her father gave a lot of tzedakah. Why she comes, it looks like a lie. The Gemara says, when he used to go to yeshiva, her father, to learn Torah, they used to put special rugs on the floor. They open it, they roll it. They open it that he won't walk on the mud. It's not like today you have nice roads, it's all stone. It used to be sand, sometimes muddy, rain. So they used to open it that his feet and his beautiful clothes would not get dirty. Why did he do it? That the poor people would run after him and collect the rugs and go and sell the rugs and they have enough money to live for days with the prices of those rugs because he didn't want to embarrass them to give the money in their hand. So like this, this is leftover. You can go and take it. Leftover, I'm not embarrassed, right? You go to a place, they tell, there's a lot of food left. They say, oh, we don't know what to do with that. We want to throw it out. Do you, do you have something to do with that? You want to take it? You're not embarrassed. I didn't come to ask. Oh, you want to throw it? So I'll take it. But if they come and say, oh, we know you're very poor, sir. Can we help you out? <laughs> Already embarrassed. He didn't want to embarrass them. So the Gemara says, such a person, that was the end of his daughter? How can it be? So the Gemara says, there are two possibilities. One, after all, even though he didn't want to embarrass them, he did it for his own honor. Many people give tzedakah very generously for one reason only, that everybody will talk about them. Did you hear how much he gave on Rosh Hashanah? Did you hear how much this family donated? I always say, they ask, they have a question if you're allowed to auction on Shabbat in shuls or in holidays. I always say, if you wouldn't do it, they wouldn't have one shul in the world. Perhaps not one yeshiva in the world. Why? The only reason all the ignorant people give money for Torah and for the synagogue is for the honor. If you tell them, people, we do not sell any more aliyot. We want you to support the shul anonymously. Nobody would know who gives what for the shul. In, I don't know, the shul needs a million dollars a year to maintain itself. How much are you giving? How much they would give? 50 bucks, Rabbi. Rabbi, business is very bad. Ah, but now if you say, okay, how much you give to the shul in front of 300 people? 10,000 for me, 10 for my wife, 10 for each one of my sons, 120,000, this is how it is. 
I remember one time, I don't know, maybe 12 or 13 years ago, I, I, I spent maybe in my whole life one or two Shabbatot in Brooklyn. One, two, two Shabbat, twice I went for a Shabbat for Brooklyn, that's it. And one of, the, of these two times, my friend took me to a very wealthy Syrian shul in, in Brooklyn, somewhere in Flatbush, very well, very fancy shul. Fancy shul with lots of wealthy people in it. The owner of this, the owner of that, the owner of that, lots of billionaires were over there. And since they know my friend, they saw that I'm his guest, they invited me to get an aliyah. Now, I'm not in the league of these people. I've never been, probably never will. You know, probably if I walk a thousand years, I won't even get to 1% of the wealth of each one of them. This is just to give you an idea. So when they invite them to get aliyah, the chazan say, you're giving you this aliyah as a gift, but it's not for free. For you giving the shul, 1,500, 2,000, <laughs> I don't make it in a month in those days. Now I'm going, they're calling me up, and the Chazan looks at me in front of almost a thousand people, a very big synagogue. Ba'avur Shev Nadev, what am I going to say now? Wow, oh, so now I wanted to be a wise guy. <laughs> so what did I say? Kemat nat libo, an anonymous amount. Like, like I don't want to be a big shot. So the Chazan said, no, no, my friend, we want to hear. <laughs> How much? <laughs> what am I going to say, hundred dollars? Every little kid, 16, 17, got up, thousand for me, thousand for my mother, thousand for my uncle, 12,000, this family, 50,000. I said to my mother, who wants this Aliyah Bechlal? <laughs> you, you invite him. Man, now it turns that they saw a guest. Somebody, oh, it's an opportunity to get some foreign money. <laughs> I understand what's going on here. In front of everyone, of course you're going to say a big amount. That's the reason in the last parasha, uh, in Pikudeh, Parashat Pikudeh, when they, they make the Mishkan, Hashem said to Moshe, everyone gives machatzita shekel. This has always come before Purim, this machatzita shekel. Half a shekel. The poor person cannot give less. And the rich person, which is nothing to him, half a shekel, cannot give more. And we never found anywhere in the history, nowhere in the Torah, that Hashem is limiting the amount of donation that the Jew is allowed to give. The opposite. The more you give, the better it is. Everywhere you go. All of a sudden, hey, hey, wealthy guy, don't give more than half a shekel. Only give 50 cents, whatever, today. Imagine today. They build the Beta Mikdash, let's say in Jerusalem, and, and, and they said to you, hey, we only want 50 cents from you. What do you mean 50 cents? You're embarrassing me. Let me give half a million dollars to the Temple of Hashem. No, no, no. 50 cents. <laughs> it sounds like a very, very good joke, no? Why Hashem say that the rich people cannot give more than half a shekel? Why? Because Moshe Rabbeinu is sitting there and receiving the money from them. Ah, the king of the world is accepting your donation. Of course you're going to make a show-off. I'm not interested in show-off. This is show-off. If you come and, you, and, and the rabbi sends his driver to collect tzedakah, and he doesn't write who gave what. Give him, I don't know, 20 bucks. 
But if the big rabbi come by himself to your house, the $20 became $2,000. Why? You only gave because of either you want relationship with him or you are embarrassed from him, but you gave because he was there. Same thing with Moshe. Hashem said, yeah, I know you're going to give a lot. Of course, because Moshe Rabbeinu is sitting there. What, do you want to uh, come to Moshe and give him 50 bucks? He knows you're a wealthy person. I'm not interested. Because this is not for the sake of heaven. It's not pure. To give a lot, when you receive nothing from the person you give, that's a, that's a holy tzedakah. That's a holy donation. Many people give knowing I'm going to accept one day something from this guy. I'm going to need him. One day I'm going to need him. One day I'm going to need him. That's not already pure. Just, uh, so the story of the Gemara says, one thing he was doing for honor. That's one possibility. And the other one, he did not do, he did not fulfill his full obligation. Yes, he gave fortune. But compared to how much he had, it wasn't enough. And this is what I've been repeating who knows how many times in the previous lectures. We are very impressed from the amount. Donations do not go by the amount. It goes by the efforts, percentage-wise. If you give a $1,000 check, it could be a great donation. It can be a lousy donation. Depend who you are. If you make $1,000 an hour, what's $1,000? No, so you gave an hour of your month to a good cause. Very nice of you. We appreciate it. But the other person work all week for the $1,000, and he also gave $1,000. You expect the same reward like the poor person? You really think that you deserve the same reward? Yes, you gave the same amount. With your 1000 they bought a table to the synagogue. With his 1000 they bought another table to the synagogue. Two tables. But you gave an hour of your life, and he gave 70 hours of his life. That's the difference, my friend. It doesn't go by the amount. That's why sometimes a per- I have a kid, a kid that sends an envelope. Every once in a while, he sends an envelope with cash. How much? Six dollars. Maximum we ever send, fourteen dollars. He's a young kid, 16, 17. From the little money that his parents give him, it's not a wealthy family. I don't even know how much he gets. I would have to assume maybe a hundred dollars a month, two hundred dollars a month, something like this. How much a kid gets in high school? He takes every leftover after his transportation, whatever left, instead of going to a restaurant and eat, he sends to make eight CDs, 14 CDs, to give them out, hoping one of these CDs will turn a Jew to be religious, and that's the best investment a person can do in his life. One day will happen. It already happened, I'm telling you. But just to let you know, this is a smart kid. Yeah, he could have taken the $10 and eat some falafel and drink some tea, you know, iced tea, whatever, and two minutes later the money is gone, so he enjoyed two minutes, and he did not get any mitzvah. And here, he can already make a billion mitzvot a month from that $8, an extra 4, an extra 6, an extra 14. It already became more than 100. 100 DVDs are traveling. This Jew started to put filin after he heard. This one started to come to shul. This one left his Christine. This one is starting to keep Shabbat. This one is eating only kosher from now on. It all goes to this kid account, my friend. 
The kid gets everything. Why? Because he was clever. The kid was clever, and we are not sometimes. He's clever. Not all of us are clever. You know, and the worst thing is that there are many people who constantly lie. What do they say? They say, oh, we don't really have. Business is very bad. We cannot even cover the expenses. If it's true, fine. They don't have to give. You don't have, you don't have. But if it's not true, for sure it will be true. Just one day, another year, five years, ten years, Hashem will take the words and turn it into reality. If he has millions on the side and say, I'm broke, the millions will gone, will be gone one day. Why? Because you're lying when it comes to tzedakah. Whatever you say, Hashem say, Amen. However, if a person doesn't have, and he says, ah, don't worry about me. Ah, don't worry, it's really nothing. I have, I have, here, take. The literally as he gives. Hashem say, you know what? You say you have, you will really have. That's how it is. Now, you know, people are asking about the situation, about the future, what's going to happen in the world. The answer is, the situation, as I always say, and I constantly repeat, will become a lot worse than what it is. The economy will become ten times worse than what it is. There will be thousands of more vacant places where stores, there will be thousands of people cannot find jobs, there will be a lot of crime, tons of crimes is going to be. So now you may say, wait a minute, in that case, maybe we shouldn't give any tzedakah. It's time of emergency, let's hide a little what we have. Hard days are coming. The answer is wrong. Wrong conclusion. In times of problems, that's your chance to prove Hashem how much you trust Him. Hashem, I kept a little money on the side for times of emergency. But there are good causes to do. I want to save your children. I want to support the, the, the yeshiva. I don't want the Torah to stop. I trusted you until now. You don't really have any difficulty continuing to help me even in time of starvation, right? Yaakov Avinu, in time of starvation, Yaakov Avinu had what to eat. Hashem took care of him. Same thing Abraham, same thing Yitzchak, same thing all the people. All the people who trusted Hashem doesn't matter the situation in the world. It did not affect them. It only affects ordinary people who do not trust Hashem. If you trust Hashem, you don't have to worry what's going to happen in the world. Crime, shooting on the street, people robbing each other, no jobs, it's very difficult to get food, people will be standing on the street selling gold just to survive. Yes, it won't touch you. Hashem will take care of you 100%. Why? Because you show that you have faith in him. Remember, Hashem has no limitation. When he makes the situation as it is, and it's going to become a lot worse, he still does not have any limitation. If you think that you're going to take care of yourself by hiding money, or you have some money in CDs, and you're going to cash on them, you will be very surprised. The money that you trusted you're saving, the government will eat it up like it happened in Argentina and in Russia and many other places. You come to your millions of dollars that you hid in, in a bank or in Switzerland, and the, and the ATM would say, sorry, only $200 a week permitted. It happened many times. I'm not hallucinating. It happened. So, it will happen here because this country is completely bankrupt already, completely. 
every one of the state didn't have enough money to clean the roads, to clean the garbage, to pay employees. They don't have. The government print billions of dollars every day and give them out to all the states. California is bankrupt, all Las Vegas, now New York, everyone. Why? Because there's no money. Even, even if they collect 100% taxes from the American citizen for years, they still cannot cover what they owe China. 100% taxes, everyone will pay. Everyone, everything you own, you, you earn, you give to the government. You still don't cover what we owe. Imagine with the interest, paid fortune, a lot of interest. They cannot pay the interest. They print money like crazy. All this will last until the world will decide that they don't want the dollar to be the reserve currency anymore. And one hour will be the end of everything. But those who trusted Hashem in time of trouble and for the little that they have, they continue to do what He want them to do, they will be, the, in the end, the biggest winners out of all this. Hashem will direct them in such a way, they will get saved. People will kill each other in times of bad economy, they will get saved. And this is what it is. And if a person gets killed, no, so what? Who say to die it's bad? You die, you get rid of the miserable situation, you go to heaven. What are you complaining? I save you from this new holocaust. Financial holocaust cause pogroms. Who are the ones who pay the price? Usually always the Jews. You understand? I want to tell you a story that happened. Last Friday, I have a friend from Philadelphia. I've been in Philadelphia a few times, in Cherry Hills, over the years. I've been there about a year, a year and so. I gave a lecture there. There was a yard site. As many people came in a, in a restaurant. It was a very good night. It's the, way, the lecture that I gave there in, in Hebrew, it's in the website. I think we called it the night in Philadelphia. After that lecture, we gave a lot of CDs. And Baruch Hashem, many people, and many, from the, compared to how many people came, a large portion of them became Shomer Shabbat. Among them, this friend of mine was already Shomer Shabbat, but his brother's family wasn't. After that night, the mother became fully religious. She covered her hair. She made the house kosher. They have three kids. They send them to yeshivot. They got them out of publics, and they started to learn Torah. Each one of them became, Baruch Hashem, a very serious learner. And the father of the family also became Shomer Shabbat, but you know, he's not very, very religious. But Shomer Shabbat he became. Eat kosher, Shomer Shabbat, putting tefillin, going to shul, yes. Ordinary things he does. Friday, I say, well, his brother used to call me every two, three weeks. I say, it's been two months, I haven't heard from him. When I don't hear from a person, there could be two reasons for it. Person that contact me on a weekly basis or monthly basis, if I stop to hear from him, it could be either, God forbid, something happened to him, or that he's going down on his spirituality and he's embarrassed to call me, he wants to avoid questions. And ask him, how are you doing? You're learning? You're this? You how Shabbat is this? And then he's going to start to have to lie to me. He'd rather not calling. And that's a red light for me. Oh, this guy used to call every three, four days. I don't hear from him anymore. Let's give him a call. Let's see what's going on. And usually it's always the case. How are you? I'm not so good. You're learning? Well, not like I used to. They have the same answers, all of them. <laughs> anyway, I call up this guy. I say, Meir, how are you? 
What happened? Two months, not one phone call. Oh, Rabbi, I'm sorry, you're right. I said, well, you're going down also? He said, no, God forbid, every day I go higher and higher. Very serious, I learn every open minute. I said, oh, very good, Baruch Hashem. If that's the reason, I'm very happy. Then he says to me, did you hear what happened to my brother? I said, what happened to your brother? He said, my brother is buying gold, buying, selling gold. A few days ago, this, is, this conversation is last Friday, Friday, 11 in the morning, 12 in the morning. A few days ago, he says to me, robbers went into his place, they robbed all the money from his store. It was about $11,000 there. They stole all the money with guns. The money is gone. You know how hard it is to make money. Now they rob you from $11,000 you have on the side. You buy and sell gold with that. So that's already a bad thing. The next day, he has some kind of a simcha, an event. He goes with his wife to a place. They put a babysitter in the house. These robbers from yesterday, they already knew everything about him before they came to rob him. They gone out to his house. They tie the babysitter, put a tape on her mouth. They take all the kids, they tie them in a room. All of them are tied, you know, tapes on their mouth. And they sit in the living room for two, three hours, drinking, eating, watching television with their guns, waiting for the husband and wife to come back. Look at the confidence these criminals have. Remember what I said a few months ago? They have nothing to lose, and that's the end of us. Why? When they're not afraid of, 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 of the jail, put me in jail. Televisions, peanut butter sandwiches, basketball, all the body from the, all the gang from the neighborhood, one after the other, they're all jail over there. Heat for free, have my own room. Well, well, what's the problem? No big deal. So they make me stand a few times a day to count. There's nothing to lose. They have nothing in their personal life right now. So you put them over there. They don't have to worry about making money. There's no fear. It's not like in the Arab country, you still, they chop your head off, your hand off. There's something to be afraid of. The crime is growing by the minute here. So they sit there, there he comes, his poor brother comes. Say, after he's in shock from, the, from, from yesterday, they put guns to his head and his wife, and they stole another few thousand dollars that he had in the house. So now I say to him, wow, I'm surprised it happens to your brother, you know. No, what can we do? Only Hashem knows why. Then I say, okay, yalla, Shabbat Shalom, let's go. So no, no, one more thing. So he says to me, you know me, since I'm a kid, I have dreams. There are people in this world that are very spiritual, very high level. Spirituality, naturally they're high in spirituality. Usually it's the women that have these correct dreams that comes to them, usually. That they have a dream and it happens after a few days. But this guy, I don't know, out of nowhere, every time he has a dream, it comes true. This person is going to die, three days later the person dies. There's going to be fire in this house, fire over there. So it's like a vision in the middle of his sleep. So he said to me, you know, I, you know me with my dreams. When I have a dream, that's it. It's for sure will happen. For sure, not maybe yes, maybe not. I had a dream that a relative of mine that is very close to me is going to die, he says to me. But I don't know which one. And it makes me very nervous because I know it's, it's about to happen every day. 
I'm very, I'm waiting for it. Right away, Hashem opened my eyes and I connected the two stories that he told me. I said, oh, now I got the whole thing. What happened to your brother was a replacement for a death sentence that he had in the court of heaven. Before Hashem killed a Jew, he gives him one last chance by taking a lot of money for him in a strange way. That's one last warning before death penalty. If he has money that he really owns, if all his money is stolen, then he doesn't get that warning. Why? How? I'm going to take money from you that it's not yours and give you a merit for it? No, it's not yours. If it's really yours, you earned it without stealing, without cheating. It's really money that you earned. Now I'm going to take it instead of, God forbid, kill you. So I say to him, the dream that you had, that your brother was guilty of something and was supposed to die. And the money that he lost just got him his life back. That's what it looks to me, I say to him. Then he said to me, I also thought so. I said, what made you think so? He said, my brother recently stopped keeping Shabbos. That's before he told me, I told him. I said, oh, Baruch Hashem, now I understand. Now there's no more doubts. Call your brother right away now, now. Now it's Friday, Friday noon. Tell him tonight he must keep Shabbat because he's not going to get another warning. That means the judgment on him is very strict now. It could be this Shabbat, his last Shabbat. He's going to be able to be mechalel, to violate. Maybe the next one, we don't know. Only Hashem knows. Don't play games with fire. Tell him right away to return and keep Shabbat. He said, if I'll tell him, it won't be as good as you tell him. Do you mind calling him? Say, give me his cell phone. I wrote down his cell phone number. I called him up. I started to talk to him. He was holding his tears on the phone. I saw that he's shivering. He said to me, I'm sending my wife and the children Sunday in eight days from now. Sunday, I'm sending them back to Israel. I cannot live here anymore. I'm out of my mind. You know, my hands are shaking. I, I, I cannot function. You know what it is? They put the guns into me and my children. They put us in a room. Guns like this. And you don't know any second they're going to shoot. I have nightmares. I cannot fall asleep. So I told him, you're lucky it's ended up with a few thousand dollars. You were a dead man already. You don't understand. You got your life back for 15,000, whatever it was. Instead of making a party. So I told him, you have to make a party now. Make a big lecture in Philadelphia and I come. I say, make your things and you tell the people how you stop being Shomer Shabbat. And this is what happened right after. If it happens or not, well, he wants to do it. If it will happen or not, we'll see. But the idea is, people who knows the truth, Hashem doesn't have that much patience for them like people who grew up like Goim. It's not the same. You know the truth and you have the nerve to rebel against me every second of your life. And you expect me to tolerate that? Don't be a wise guy. This is the truth. That's it. What's with this? Nakdimon Ben Gurion. He gave millions of dollars to people every month to eat. All the people of Jerusalem eat from his storages for free. Compared to how much he had, it wasn't enough. You understand? What are we going to say? Making a million, giving a thousand. Making a thousand, giving a dollar. 
And that's what's going on. And then she said, so he told her, but after all, he did so many other things. Some of his money was good. Not everything was supposed to be gone. She said the good money was lost because of the bad money when they got together. Sometimes you go into a partnership with a partner. Your money is clean, not stolen. You give 10% from your income as soon as you made it. If you're a rich person, so you give 20, 30, 50%, you're generous. So your money is kosher. But you went into a partnership with your brother or your cousin or your friend or anyone that his money is not kosher. Stolen, drugs, money, who knows what. His money contaminates yours and it's all going down the drain. Why? It's contagious. You mix kosher with not kosher, the non-kosher destroy it. Same thing in food. Take now a big soup, $1,000 full of all kinds of beautiful meat, glad kosher meat, vegetables, broccoli, I don't know, beans, whatever you want. You made for 300 guests. And now you take liquid from the pork, fat of the pork, you spill a little bit inside, all over. <laughs> what happened to the soup? Five bucks of pork fat made $2,000 big army ball soup, you know, into garbage. You have to give it to the dog now. Wow, you spill a little milk in it. Comes the bed and contaminate the good and made it all bad. Understand? That's what's going on here. I have a question. Yeah. You said that you're not supposed to invest, you shouldn't invest for the future, you should be giving Sadaka. So instead of having a like 401k. No, no, I didn't say that. I didn't say you shouldn't invest for the future. If you can buy silver and gold, you want to have some money in a time of need, yes, do it. I didn't say to sit here and wait for a hand coming to heaven and hand you money in your hand. No. But I said, among all your efforts to protect your financial future, don't ever do it on the expense of donations and tzedakah and your 10% that you must give. Thinking that by saving from giving tzedakah, that's going to save me financially is the most foolish decision a person can make in his entire life. That will bury you much faster. If anything will save us in times of tragedies like this, is that Hashem would see, you know, this guy is my real good son, faithful. In times of problems, in times of starvation, in times of bad economy, in times of recession, in times of anything, violence, crimes, he never neglected my Torah. He still supported my children. He still put, uh, I don't know, lectures in his home. He still supported the show, whatever the thing. He never gave up, even though he had all the reasons in the world to be afraid. He's giving from the little he have left. Now I'm gonna bonus him. I will benefit him bigger than anybody that you can think of. And we saw many, many cases like this. Many, many cases like this. Tanura Banan, how do you dance in front of the kala, in front of the bride, in the wedding? Remember, we are in Masechet Ketubot, so we're going to speak a lot about weddings. Bet Shammai Omrim, kala k'moshei. What does it mean, ketzad merakdim lifnei kala? It used to have a tradition that everybody comes in front of the, the bride and the groom, and they say, ha. Huh? About the kala, they have to say like a blessing. Like today, they come with a video and a microphone. They have to say a few words. So they come. So Bet Shammai say, you're not allowed to lie. 
which means if he got married to, excuse my language, to a monkey. Horrible, horrible, terrible look. Nobody can even look at this ugliness. Now, are you allowed to tell him she's a gorgeous scholar? Allowed to lie? Or you have to say, wow, what a bad choice you made. Bet Shammai say, you have to say the truth. Bet Hillel say, Kala na'av chasuda. Very nice looking, gorgeous. <laughs> Sometimes it's hard. You have to make sure you don't smile when you say it. Why? Bet Shammai asked them, wait a minute, you say he is allowed to be such an extremist and to lie in such a lie, such an obvious lie? So they ask him, what happened if she's crippled or blind? Or she has one eye going to the right and one eye goes to the left and she comes like this to the wedding. You also have to say gorgeous. He knows you're lying. The Torah says, Midvar Sheker Tirchak, stay away from lies. Bet Shammai attacking Bet Hillel. It's an argument, philosophical argument. It's not only about marriage and about the bride, it's about everything in life. He bought an ugly suit. He already bought it, there's no return. Don't come and say to him, oh, I saw it for half a price across the street. It's too late, my friend. If he can return, no problem. In America, it's the land of returns, not for long. Soon it's going to be changed, but it's already changing. But if it's a done deal, why are you breaking his heart? If the suit is very ugly, he likes it. He thinks it's beautiful. Everybody else thinks it's ugly. Tell him, wow, what a nice suit. Mazal tov, good. Make him happy. Let him feel good. It's an illusion, but at least he feels good. So it's not only about the bride. From here we learn to everything else. We have to stay away from lies. Bet Hillel told them, eh, according to your opinion, if somebody bought a bad merchandise from the market, should he praise him for that or should he laugh at him? Eh, what a fool. What did you buy? <laughs> it says... Yeah, it says, You have to say to him, great. That's the halacha. From here, Chachamim say, the rabbi says, a person should always be mixed with the opinion of the public. Don't be, yeah, don't be, don't be too extreme. In other words, hey, it's horrible, you have no taste. Why did you buy it? No, no, no. Make him happy. Let the person be happy. The Gemara says, and we have uh, three more minutes, so let's take advantage on that. Even though we don't have Sanhedrin, the 71 chief rabbis that were sitting in the holy temple in Lishkata Gazit, the Sanhedrin, why 71? Because it cannot be an even number, not to have a draw in their decisions. They always have to have a majority. Even though there's no more temple, and the rabbis do not gather anymore Sanhedrin, and they cannot reach a verdict of execution to any person, because there's no more Bet HaMikdash, no more Sanhedrin, no more altar in Bet HaMikdash, the, uh, the four methods of execution are still existing, exist in the world. But how does it happen? God himself executes the people. In the old days, in the old days, people could have come and they said, you know, uh, 
we saw this and this person doing such and such, the police arrest him, they bring him to court, they judge him, end of story. But today we don't have that kind of court. We know Sanhedrin, Zrakadosh Baruch Hu is doing it. Car accident, falling from a bridge, drowning in a lake, drowning from gas, a bomb fell on his head, plane crash. Uh, uh, who knows? So many sicknesses. Today cancer is an epidemic. All kinds of other sicknesses, heart attacks. This is all replacement for the four methods of execution. How many different kinds of death we have? 913. 913 different kinds of death, the Gemara says. Four of them is execution by the court. Official legal execution to the wicked people. Even though it doesn't exist, the Gemara say, either he fall from the roof or an animal hit him by running or he fall into fire or fire is surrounding him and he's burned or a snake sting him and he, the poison kills him or he drowned or the army of the Goim comes to town and kill him and etc. etc. This is many different ways, you know, of doing it. Okay, we're done for today. Uh, we still next week in Masechet Ketubot. We're going to speak about also beautiful subjects uh, next Wednesday at 8.30. Monday also, 8.30 in, in, uh, in 73rd Avenue and, and 172nd Street. Every Monday in the shul. Thank you.